We're going to start, if you, uh, if you have version, you're following along with the verses, you can feel free to do that. If you have your Bible, you can follow along. I'm going to go ahead and uh, start off in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, we're continuing our series called Consider the Source, Consider the Source, and this week's uh, message is entitled Wisdom. And uh, we're going to be talking about really the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians as we go throughout this series. And so if you want to open up, we'll, we'll read along together. It says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful to be in your presence this morning. We're thankful to uh, carve out time in our lives to lean in and hear your word. And so I pray that, uh, that as we dig deep into your word this morning, that you would be present to convict our hearts, to open our minds, and that we would lean into all that you have for us. In your name we pray. Everyone said, amen, amen. Um, as I was thinking about this idea of wisdom and what this uh, text is really about as far as the, the context of sort of bragging about things, um, I thought honestly about my life and I thought about a lot of different situations where I've bragged about things that um, really didn't make a whole lot of sense. And uh, there was one in particular that I thought of. I was in sixth grade and uh, I remember the first pair of Nike Air sneakers that I ever had, Nike Air. It was like a big deal. And like if you're around my age, you know, you're old, and uh, you're, you know what I'm talking about. Like when all of a sudden just a shoe became like not just a Nike shoe, but now it's like Nike Air. There's an air pouch in your heel. You run faster. You jump higher. It's unbelievable. You are part of the elite now. And I remember the first pair that I got, and I remember the conversation I had with my parents where they were like, that is ridiculous. We are not spending that much on a pair of shoes. And I was like, please, I'll pay part of it. I want so bad. I will jump higher. I will run faster. Like, this is a game changer, Dad. You're investing in my athletic future. <laughs> you know? 
Who knows if I was that articulate, but I could totally picture it based on the way my kids argue for things. In either case, they were hideous. They were uh, neon orange across the bottom, white on top. I mean, they were ugly. They were totally ugly, and yet they were beautiful, right? <laughs> and, and so I remember the first time I, I went into to sixth grade, and I had my sneakers on. I'm, like, walking through the hallways. I'm, like, I am so awesome right now. I can't even stand it. You know, and you're nervous, like, anything that brushes against. I'm, like, dude, my shoes, my sneakers. And... Uh, I remember I was in homeroom because sixth grade was the first time that we switched classes, and everybody's like, oh my gosh, they're Nike Airs, jump. And I'm like, look, I jumped so high, I don't even feel it. It's like I'm floating. You know, it was so stupid. And uh, the second day that I went back to school with my Nike Air, I thought, this is just, sky's the limits here. Claude's going to become so cool that I become a household name. You know, and uh, in sixth grade, your mind's just, uh, you know, the possibilities are endless. And I went in and uh, one of my friends had a, a pair of Air Jordans. And it was the first year that the Nike Air Jordans came out. This basketball player by the name of Michael Jordan. Um, some of you have probably never heard of him. <laughs> if you're from a different planet. And, uh, but, but they were, I mean, talk about stupid expensive sneakers. They were like... You're an idiot. What are you doing? Like, you know what I mean? Like, why are you wearing those on your feet? And, uh, and so this kid walked in. I remember his name. His name was Josh. And everybody was just like, oh, oh, my gosh. And suddenly, my ugly neon orange Nike Airs did not matter. And they were all just around him. Like, oh, this is incredible. I wonder if you can dunk now. Because <laughs> you're four foot nothing. <laughs> but you have the Jordans, you know? And, uh, and so he just starts bragging about how awesome he is because of what he has. And all of a sudden, I feel completely worthless and confused. How did my world come unraveled? And in a moment of brilliance, one of my other friends walks in and puts his foot up on a chair, and all of a sudden you hear, huh? And now if you're in your 40s, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The dude had Reebok pumps, right? It's like, like, huh? And all of a sudden everyone's like, ah, Jordan who? He pumps his shoes up. You know, they like run over to him. It's, it was this whole thing about this battle of who has what will somehow make them someone. This idea of bragging about your belongings. And this week I was in a local cafe here and I sat and it doesn't, you don't have to do a lot of work uh, to do this. If you just sit and listen, you'll hear people begin to brag about themselves in public settings like that. I watched a, a woman start to, to brag about her weight, how much weight she lost. And I mean, it's just, you know, it's amazing. I mean, I look incredible, right? You know, and you're like, eh, you know. And as she's sitting there talking about how amazing she is and how gorgeous she is and blah, 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 blah. And everybody else is like, ah, I don't know what to do with this. At another table, there's a, a guy bragging about the new car that he has and uh, how much that increases his status. And, and I hear another conversation in proximity to me where a, a gentleman is talking about where he lives to someone else, and the, the other person doesn't know what that means because they're not from the area locally. And so he's trying to let them know, you should be impressed by this. <laughs> Unbeknownst to you, you should be impressed by where I live. And so he's sitting there bragging about his location. And, and Here's the reality, regardless of, of you being a kid bragging about something that you think increases your status or you're an adult, the fact is we all brag about something. We all do. If you have blood running through your veins today, there, there's something you brag about. The question is, what do you brag about? 
And so I want you to, to consider that for a moment. What do you brag about in your life? Because you do. And, you, and if you're sitting there and you're like, I am so holy, I brag about nothing. Okay, that's what you brag about. You brag about being so holy, all right? So that's your thing. So whatever it is, as, as you sit and consider, I want, you to, I want you to realize that bragging is really an indicator of something deeper. You brag about your job. You brag about where you live. You brag about where you went to college. You brag about where your kids are going to college or what your kids are going to do or who it is that they're going to become. What is it? that you brag about. Because when you brag, when we brag, I should not remove myself from the conversation. When we brag, what we're saying is this. I matter because of this. I have value because of this. And it's almost like a question we're asking the public. This woman, I couldn't help but feel bad for her as she's sitting there in front of the cafe and she's literally saying, I'm pretty, right? I mean, I mean, I'm beautiful, aren't I? I'm valuable. Tell me I'm valuable. We do this over and over again. We're saying, I've earned your respect. Have I earned your respect? Have I earned your love? It's all mixed up in kind of this weird identity thing that we all struggle with. This thought or conventional wisdom is why the cross is so offensive. You see, we need to understand the context of Corinth as we look at the context of of this verse and the text where it lies. The cross itself was offensive. In fact, the cross wasn't even talked about in polite conversations. We have to understand that, um, you know, today when we think about the cross, it's like in sanctuaries in churches. It's up on top of buildings. People wear it around their neck as jewelry. We, we equate the cross as something of beauty or something that is a symbol of love or a relationship with God. But the cross in the day of Corinth was an offensive thing. The closest thing we have in today's society is the electric chair. That's the closest thing. I mean, you don't walk into a public setting and be like, oh my gosh, you hear about that dude that died in the electric chair? Oh, let's talk about it. It was so gruesome. You know, some of you right now are like, hey, this isn't funny. <laughs> like, why are you joking around about the electric chair? Right? It's offensive to even talk about. It's just not polite. That, that is, is the same of what's true in their day and age. Is They're saying the God of heaven came down to earth And the Messiah, the son of the living guy, died the most disgraceful, disturbing death that their society has in place. It made no sense. It was offensive in nature. But the offense of the cross goes beyond just what it meant to the the people in Corinth. It goes against the way we're wired and the way we perceive life. And so I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to talk about how offensive the cross is. And so inherently... I'm about to offend you. Thank you for coming to church this morning. <laughs> so here's the deal. Verse, seven, uh, verse 18. Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, he sets up in verse 17 where we left off last week this idea that the, the cross is being emptied of its power if we lean into wisdom. And, and he uses word to kind of indicate wisdom or knowledge. But in this portion, word 
actually means message. And so he's saying, for the message of the cross is folly or foolishness. Okay, so I'm going to use foolishness and folly interchangeably. So the, the, the word, the message of the cross is foolishness to those perishing. And then it's kind of interesting that as he talks about power, the power of God, he doesn't use the opposite of power, which is weakness, right? There's power and there's weakness. He talks about that later on in the pericope when we get down there. But right now, he's not setting that up. He's actually saying power, the opposite of God's power, is foolishness, is folly. It seems kind of counterintuitive. How would the opposite of power be foolishness? Well, power equals effectiveness. So listen, the opposite of foolishness isn't human wisdom. It's God's power. So the opposite of God's power is not just weakness. The opposite of God's power is foolishness because folly leads to striving, which is ineffective, fruitless, and empty. You see, the conversation that Paul's setting up here is not so much about power and foolishness as much as it is about effective and ineffective. What it is that you try to do with your own ability, with the knowledge that you have been born with, with with common sense, the things that you try to justify, the thing that you try to make sense versus the actual power of God. So listen, we've got self-destroying and divisive pride. That's why we brag. Versus God-empowering transformation. All right, so I'm going to say that one more time because I said a whole lot of kind of concepts and I want you to track with me. We've got self-destroying divisive pride versus God-empowering transformation. Sounds like a no-brainer, right? Like, why in the world would we be divisive? Why in the world would we be self-destroying? Why wouldn't we opt for the God-empowering transformation? How is that offensive? The message of the cross is that humanity on its own, cannot be good enough for God. So listen to that for a second. You can never be good enough for God. That sounds offensive, right? It sounds like, what do you mean? Like, no, God is love. Like, why would, no, I'm good enough, aren't I? Oh, please, Pastor, no. <laughs> you have to get to a place where you realize that in and of yourself, you will never be good enough for God. We don't like that because we like to say in our wisdom, in human wisdom, we like to say that people are good. Listen, at our core, people are good. Really? What delusional world do you live in? If people are so good, why do you lock your doors? Are people really good? No. They're not. They're not. Welcome to Centerway Church. Aren't you glad you came? Yeah. But you can hear a, sh a, a hush. Why? Because conventional worldly wisdom wants to say people are good. There's no such thing as a bad kid. It's just the way they were raised. Really. We like to be shocked by the depravity of others because it makes us feel civilized. Right? That's why we say things like, I can't believe it. Not in our community. Did you hear what happened? Oh, my goodness. I would never. Really? You would never? Does that make you feel better? 
Does it make you feel better when you remove yourself from the disturbing reality that is humanity and you put yourself in a position where you say, certainly I am far more civilized than to ever do that. You see, if we were really good, if people were really good, then we wouldn't need the cross. We wouldn't need the cross. You're good enough. God loves you just like you are. Listen, be a good person. Be kind to others. Earn your salvation. You can't. That's offensive. It's, it's inherently offensive. Some of you are even offended like, please, God, finish this message. Connect the dots. You can't possibly be saying what I think you're saying. Because we don't like to come to the end of ourselves and realize that we are depraved if If we live the unedited version of our lives, we are selfish, we are divisive, we are destructive people. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Isn't it interesting that we can say that verse, that you can go into churches and be like, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Like, "Mm, amen, amen. Like, you're a sinner, you're depraved, and you're far from God. You're like, "Mm, I don't like that. I don't like that one. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. We've all sinned. You can't be good enough to come into the presence of God. Listen, the anger, the pride, the lust, the arrogance on its best behavior is sin. You can be a good person, but without receiving what Jesus did on the cross, you're perishing. You're perishing. And that's offensive. People don't like that message. And quite honestly, we want to create an environment where we allow the gospel and the cross to offend people before we ever do. Because I can offend you through my preference, but if the gospel offends you, that's okay. Because I, I believe that God wants to rearrange our heart this morning. And if that, if that doesn't offend you, because some of the default is, well, that's just not fair. That's just not fair. It doesn't fit in our idea of fairness. If that doesn't offend, then the idea of God sending an innocent and sinless Jesus to die a death that he didn't deserve is offensive for sure. And it's certainly not fair. What's fair about that? Our salvation is contingent upon something that is clearly not fair, according to our wisdom. And and the reality of some, you know, homicidal God that sends his son to die is offensive because it's poor theology. So that one's messed up. Jesus was not some powerless pawn in this grander scheme of redemption. He was and is fully God. And so what you really need to understand, make no mistake, Jesus lived the sinless life that we can't, and then he laid his life down for you and for me. He paid the penalty of our sin, and he allows us to walk in the freedom that's available only to him because of what he has done. Here's an offense. The only thing that you could ever contribute to your own salvation is the sin that made it necessary. This is such a cheer me up message. I don't know about you guys. I feel good, right? Woo! I'm just preaching the text this morning. The reality is we have to come to a place where we realize the depth of the problem. The depth of the problem. In our Americanized world, We don't want to go to the depth of the problem, and so we think that Jesus is something that we just simply add to our other other fruitful things. 
And look at how well-rounded of a person I am. Let me brag about my civility. Goodness sake. But the reality is that the only thing that you contributed to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. We are broken. And all we bring is our brokenness. And as devastating as that can be, in concept, it's also the best news you could ever hear. Because if all we bring is brokenness, then we don't have to pretend that we're otherwise. We don't have to act like we've got it all together. We can't walk in and say, listen, I am civilized enough to be amongst these others. Instead, we can come and say, I'm just as broken. You see, the Corinthians had to know the depth of the problem, just like we do. Another offense is that our response to the cross determines our destiny. It doesn't, it doesn't say people are eventually going to perish. It says, for the, for the word, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The Greek is in a present participle. And what that means is that they are in the process of perishing. That in the midst of their life, as they're striving and leaning into their own wisdom and bragging about the things of this world as if it matters, they're literally in the process of perishing. They're coming unraveled. You see that all around you. Some of you maybe are here this morning and saying, I'm coming unraveled. I think I'm in the process of perishing. But it doesn't end there. He goes on in the same way. He says, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. To those that are being saved, it's again in a present participle, which means it's a continuing process. So you think of it like this. If you're out in the, uh, out in the ocean and all of a sudden a, a, a boat comes along and throws you a life preserver, are you saved in that moment? You might think, yeah, I'm saved. They threw me a life preserver. I'm fine. And then like in the creepy little meme or whatever, a shark comes up and like hits you. And you're like, and it's over, right? No, you're in the process of being saved. You're in the process, right? It's not until you come aboard the boat that you have been saved, but all along the way, your entire demeanor changes. Why? Because you're in process of being saved. When you understand the power of the cross, the process begins to transform you. The process that we call sanctification. The reality of the truth of what God has done that you could never do for yourself starts to come alive in you, and it affects every area of your life. So will you respond to what God has done? Will you respond to what God has done? The final offense, for those of you who are like, please, I don't want to hear any more offenses, <laughs> is that God is free to do whatever he wants. We hate that. It's amazing because we love the benefit of it, right? If we, if we do something and, and God shows us mercy and extends grace when, when we've been more depraved than we ever imagined possible, and all of a sudden God comes in and he changes that situation, we love to be in the grip of grace. But when we watch Jesus extend it to others, we think, well, that's not fair. We have a perfect picture of it. Jesus is on the cross. If we look at his crucifixion, he's on the cross, and there's a thief that's being hung next to him. There's another on the other side. One mocks him. The other one says, you are the son of God. Will you remember me when you're in paradise today? And he looks at this thief on the cross dying a death that he deserves, and he says, 
today you'll be with me in paradise. What? Like, he's a thief. He is the slum of the community. He's dying a death that he deserves. And Jesus just says, hey, you know what? You're going to see me in heaven today. Some of these others that are as spiritual as it gets, that are as holier than thou, we'll see. But today, because you relied on me, I'll see you in paradise. Verse 19, he says, for it is written, and then he quotes Isaiah here. This is uh, from Isaiah. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. What Paul is saying is, God will do what he wants. His ways are higher than our ways, and he'll do what he wants. It's interesting because we do this as parents, but the idea of a God that does it bothers us. <laughs> right? Like We sit there and say, no, you, you can't have that. Why not? Because I'm dad. That's my favorite, right? And you're like, why did I just say that? I sounded like my dad. And like, but I can say it, so I will, right? There's certain things that at their age, they don't have the perspective or the situation. They simply don't understand. And it doesn't make sense to them, but, but your ways are higher than their ways. And it's interesting how we can do that readily, but when, when the God of heaven functions that way, it's confusing. He's quoting Isaiah 29, 14 basically saying God's free to act as he will. And if you understand the story uh, of what's happening here in Isaiah, Assyria is attacking northern Judah. And uh, Hezekiah was the king at the time. And Assyria kind of surrounds Jerusalem, and they're mocking them, and they're taunting them. And they actually send a letter into Hezekiah that essentially says, hey, just so you know, you're a dead man. Like, we're coming for you. And Hezekiah lays this letter out before the Lord, and he just starts wailing and, and calling out to God, saying, listen, will you show me mercy, God? Will you show me mercy? And Isaiah says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And that night while the Assyrians slept and camped around Israel, 185,000 men fall dead in their tents, and Israel is saved. What? Like, what? Are you, what are, are you kidding? Like, just 185,000 people, like, boom, dead. That's not okay. That's just, what? <laughs> but here's the deal. God doesn't choose to work through conventional wisdom. He functions according to his power. Are those 185,000 men now in heaven? I have no idea. I don't know. You know why? I'm not God. Did God call them home or did he smite them? I, I don't know because I'm not God. And that is where our uh, conventional wisdom starts to, to come undone a little bit because we want an answer for everything. We want things to be concrete. It's why we have majors in college called philosophy, which is lover of wisdom. That's what philosophy means. The, the, the two words combined, lover of wisdom. Like We just want to understand so bad. So what Paul is saying here about the cross is that God will do what he wants to do. He chose to redeem the world via the cross. He levels the playing field. He says, you know what? Sinner, call upon my name and you'll be saved. Jew, Greek, 
ethnicity, doesn't matter. Man, woman, I don't care. Call upon my name and you will be saved. The cross is for everyone. It levels the playing field. And for people in that day, it's offensive. He goes on in in verse 21 after he asks some rhetorical questions. He says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. In other words, as much as the world tried to understand and comprehend who God was, they fell short. It pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach. So oftentimes we hear this translated as through the foolishness of preaching. But it's not talking about the methodology. It's talking about the content. So what what he's actually saying is through the foolishness of the cross that's preached to save those who believe. That's what pleases God. It pleases God to save those who believe. And it's in a present, continuing action. God continues to save. He continues to reach out. He continues to be for those who believe. He continues to lean in and be present. What we can't do God has done. And he goes on through verse 22 through to 24. He says, for Jews demand a sign. So the Jewish people are looking for their Messiah to come a specific way. The Jews look for a sign. And the Greeks seek wisdom. They want to be wowed with the intellect, with the oratory skills. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. A stumbling block. And those Jews are saying, no, 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 our Messiah can't come and die the most horrific death we know. Like, Jesus, God can't come and die in an electric chair. I can't believe that. It's a stumbling block. So the reality of the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews, and it's foolishness to the Greeks. The Greeks are saying, seriously, the God of heaven dies the most despicable death. For me, sweet story. That's a joke. And so literally, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So for everybody, regardless of whether or not you like it or you're offended, the reality is the cross is available to you. The cross brings self-reliance to nothing. Paul is saying, consider the source. Consider the source. If you're looking for wisdom, consider the source of where wisdom derives and the cross brings self-reliance to nothing and turns all the attention completely to Christ. Completely to Christ. And so verse 26 says, For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were rise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. Basically, we aren't all that impressive. Now here's the good news. If you're impressive, if you're here today and you're like, actually, I am pretty impressive. Like, sorry, but I actually am. It's okay because it says not many. All right? <laughs> So you're allowed to be here still. Like, you're, you're just an M away. Like, it's okay. It doesn't say not any of you. Like, we're all here this morning in the presence of God. And the cross provides this reversal of how power is perceived. It goes from achieving to receiving. And so it's amazing how all the offenses that I listed, and let me tell you, it's not a conclusive list. There's other things people are offended about the context of the cross. I just picked some of the biggies. (laughs) The reality is there's a lot of things to be offended by the reality of the fact that you can receive something that you never achieve. And the 
cross is a reversal of power that's perceived as foolishness, and yet it's this amazing love story. God is saying, I loved you so much that I did what you could never do for yourself. And regardless of your ethnicity, your socioeconomic status, your gender, it doesn't matter who you are, I died for you. If you would turn from your wicked ways and just lean into me, will you allow me to be the Lord and leader of your life? That's the good news. That's the good news that, that as much of a scandal as the cross is, it's amazingly beautiful because it allows us to do a reversal of the power shift in our world and we can go from striving for things and attempting to brag about the things that we think matter on this plane to lean into what it is that God has done for us. That's the gospel. Verses 31, 30 through 31 says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord the one who brags brag in the Lord Paul is saying our story needs to change if you're here this morning and and you have laid your life down and allowed Christ to be the center of who you are you need to stop bragging about the foolishness of this world. And you stop getting so caught up in the things that are temporal and the stuff that we own and the status, the job, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, what, whatever it ends up being today that, that you think gives you value, that you think gives you worth. Because it's the cross that says, listen, all of that stuff doesn't matter. You could be the poorest person in the most broken situation, the last and least. And I died for you. And you're forgiven, not because of your achieving, but because of what is done. You can receive and walk in it. So this morning, what does it look like to stop bragging about the foolishness of this world, to change the story? Maybe it starts by telling our friends and our families and our coworkers a new story, a story of redemption, a story of what we used to pursue, what we used to think matters, and how it is that God rearranged the power system of our lives. I want to challenge you with an application question this morning that as you leave this place, you can kind of contemplate and process the question is this, who needs to hear me champion a new story? God has put you in a sphere of influence. He's circled you with people, family, friends, neighbors, whatever. Who needs to hear you start championing a new story of redemption? And there's, there's application is across the board here as far as what that means to you specifically but it means something to everyone here. We can't simply leave this place after understanding the offense and beauty of the cross and say, and now I'm unchanged. It's so beautifully offensive and so incredible, the story of the gospel, and now I'll see you next week. It has to rearrange things in our hearts and our minds. 
has to change the language that we speak. If, if we allow the truth to sink in, if someone has thrown a life preserver to us and we thought for sure we were doomed to death, our language changes. Tears of joy. The story must be told. And so who needs to hear me champion a new story? I want you to bow your heads this morning as we contemplate and consider the application that maybe God has for us. The first thing that I want to ask you as the worship team kind of makes their way to the front, I want to ask you if you've really surrendered your life to Christ. Have you really laid your life down? I think sometimes we have emotional response to things and we say, yeah, I love the Lord, but has it, has it rearranged the things of your life? I mean, do you attend church because it's a social form of civility? Are you part of a community of people that are experiencing life change together? I want to provide you the opportunity this morning if you've never asked Jesus to be the Lord and leader of your life. It's as simple as praying a prayer. I'm not going to make you come forward or have you raise your head or hand or anything. I don't want to embarrass you, and I also don't want to manipulate you. I just want to provide an opportunity. If you want to pray a prayer, that's great. And I understand there's all different people in this room. I understand there's people that have been following the Lord forever, and there's skeptics in the room this morning that have just come, and they're checking it out, and, and all are welcome. And so I want to ask you this morning, if you want to make that decision, you can pray it in the quietness of your own mind. No one looking around and with your head bowed, you can simply say, Lord, I, I want you to be the Lord and leader of my life. You died for me. And so I want to live for you. If you're real out there, God, I, I pray that you'd come into my life. It's that easy. The, the, the conversation begins there. And if you've prayed that prayer, I'd love to talk to you about it so you can know what's next. And if you're not sure yet, that's okay too. You're still welcome to be here welcome to be here even if you say I'm not interested at all. For others of you this morning, you've prayed that prayer. I want to challenge you, maybe your application is to tell others about the reversal. About the reversal of, of your life, about how you used to live this way and now things are different. Have you, have you told anyone about that? Maybe for some of us this morning, the next step is, is going public with a decision that you made through water baptism. That's simply what it is. It's a, it's a declaration, a public declaration of an inward decision that you've made. I'd love to talk to you about that if you're interested. I want to challenge you with your head bowed just so that way you're not distracted. Obviously, you can keep your eyes open. It's just easier for me to look at the ground, just ADD enough to where I'll get distracted. But I want to challenge you to, to consider maybe God's put someone in your life that needs an invitation to this church. And if it's not this church, it's fine. It's not about building Centerway. It's about proclaiming what it is that Christ has done. And so to whatever church, if you're here and you're visiting and you're part of another church, where are you bringing people? You have to be telling people about what God's done. If you've done all that this morning and you're like, hey, I've I've given my life to the Lord. I've been water baptized. I'm, I'm inviting people to, to church. I, I've done all of that. I want to challenge you to, 
to not get wrapped up in the foolishness. And this morning, I want to submit to you that your story needs to be recentered. There needs to be a realignment of the priorities of your life. And we just want to provide the space. We want to provide the space for us to respond to God. So that's how we're going to close the services with songs of praise and adoration and opportunity to just to worship and profess value to God. I'll come back up and I'm going to close with some things. But if you would, just uh, stand to your feet and I'll lead us in a prayer as we consider and, and lean into worship this morning. Lord, I thank you for your presence in this place. I thank you for the cross. I thank you for that which you have done and that which you continue to do in and through us. And so this morning we lay our lives down, we, we set our lives apart and we ask, Lord, that you would do a work that only you can do, that you'd receive our praise and our worship as a response to the truth of the gospel this morning.